Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. So guess what I did last night? What have you done, my friend? So I went to the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra's performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and it was really good. And I saw Michelle Wu there. And for those that don't know, Michelle Wu is the mayor of Boston. So mm. I don't, I mean, we don't know each other, so I didn't go talk to her, but it's like, oh, this is kind of cool. I, um, I'm i mingling with important people. And <laughs> some people wanted to talk to her. And it wasn't a large crowd, but it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of how, oh, how maybe people felt about Jesus. He's kind of this rock star that people are going to want to crowd around him and we're going to get to that right right okay uh how are you doing oh you know it's it's been a week my guy i pretty sure i came down with a cold i didn't have all that many symptoms so i wasn't sure if it was um what do you call it not sure if it was uh freak I'm not sure if it was allergies or a cold for a while, but I also got somebody sick, oh. but I'm pretty sure I got somebody sick. And now I know that I must have been sick that entire time. Oops. So I'm like masking up now and just trying to keep managing. School mm -hmm. is still a lot. I'm about halfway through my thesis. So that's promising. Um, and yeah, just a lot to do, man. Just a lot to do. Um, I Oh, uh, kind of some cool news is I was featured on NPR's show, All Things Considered, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, I listened um, to that. It was super good. Yeah, it was really short. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Uh, just talked about, you know, my anti-racism course, just what I'm still doing in the church. Very short eight-minute interview. I think there's going to be a 30-minute podcast version that comes out sometime next week. Mm. Um, there's also a transcript on the website if people want to check that out. But it's looking like they may want to do a follow-up interview. So, uh, you know, that'd be cool. We'll just see where that goes. Um, but it was a cool opportunity because, you know, I just remember back when I was still an Uber driver and stuff, all I listened to was NPR um, in the during the morning drive. So it was just mm -hmm. very surreal to, like, um, hear certain voices talking to me or talking about me. Uh, it's just a really, it was just a really cool moment. I love NPR, and that was just a cool thing to be able to do and have broadcast, you know, throughout the country. Yeah, I'm so proud of you, and I loved how you ended with hope, because so much of the challenges we talk about it can be very depressing or pessimistic for all the valid reasons, but you've yeah. got to give them hope, like Harvey Milk said. I wanted to talk real briefly about the uh, the SEC settlement thing. You heard about this, uh, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know anybody in Mormon land who hasn't heard about this. Uh, this is kind of the big, big news in Mormon land this week. Yeah, and it shows how prophetic my comments were just two weeks ago when I said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like, we need to know where the church's treasure is. So not because like I want to play gotcha with the church, but look, it's a moral witness to the world of where we put our money is where we put our uh, priorities. And we want the mm. world to see what the good we're doing. And so yeah. accountability and transparency I've long held. Um, and now it's clear that if the leaders of the church don't don't do the 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 don't abide by the values of transparency and honesty and accountability, it's going to make it worse. Like I guarantee yeah. you that if they had just filed everything correctly and done everything right, 
it would be boring. It would never make the news. Like, no one would look up those documents, I think. But mm-hmm. anyway, I want to just briefly... Uh, I saw this thing going around that apparently is... Someone typed into this, one of these chat AI things on Microsoft Bing. Yeah. And asked... It says, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was just fined $5 million by the SEC. Please summarize the story in the style of a scripture from the Book of Mormon. And then the a, the artificial intelligence did this uh, really interesting uh, version. Have you seen this going around? I have seen it going around. I have not read it. I'm okay, afraid. well, I'm going to read it. <laughs> okay. And it came to pass that in the year of our Lord, 2023, there arose a great contention among the people concerning the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its investment arm, which was called Ensign Peak Advisors. For behold, they had amassed unto themselves a great and spacious portfolio of stocks and bonds, even to the amount of thirty and two billion dollars. And they did hide their riches from the eyes of the people by using many shell companies, which were not known unto them. And it came to pass that there was a judge in the land whose name was SEC, or Securities and Exchange Commission. And he did accuse the church and Ensign Peak Advisors of transgressing the law, which required them to make known their holdings unto all men. And he did fine them five million dollars for their iniquity. And thus we see that the church and Ensign Peak Advisors did repent not of their secret combinations, but did justify themselves before God and men, saying that they had done these things for a wise purpose in him. But behold, many people were offended by their words and deeds, and did murmur against them, and they did cause much sorrow and affliction among the saints. So there, isn't that interesting? Quite. <laughs> I think there's a place for humor keeping people accountable, right? Humor is uh, just kind of like the med- the jesters of the medieval world could say stuff about the king that anyone else anyone else said it, and they would they would get executed. I think there's a there's room for that. Um, yeah. The, the ugh, I could talk on and on about this, but did you read that there's this sort of partial apology esque thing that the church put out? The yeah, church, it was like two sentences, right? The church doesn't normally apologize, but well, there was this thing, and then there's also this Q and A that went with it on the church newsroom. Okay, and it says we we we've settled this obligation, and we now consider this matter closed. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a problem here. And the problem is, uh, well, there's many layers of problems. But what I want to say is, you can't just consider the matter closed. If I were had something to do with this, I would say, look, we messed up, and let's figure out how did we mess up, what systems and procedures were in place that led to the mess up, and let's get rid of the th- the, the environment that led to the mess up. Because we can't just say, whoops. We have to do an autopsy of what went wrong, how it went wrong, why wasn't there something in place to keep it from going wrong. Like, all people are imperfect. Mm. I'm not justifying what would happen, but I'm saying, look, imperfect stuff is going to happen in any church that is um, happening. But what we really got to do is fix the system and procedure, and that's what they didn't do. Apparently, nothing has changed. And so... um, that's I, we could talk way way too much about that. What are your thoughts about this whole thing? 
man, I haven't had the energy to like really think about this too much. It's not that I haven't raised eyebrows at it or haven't felt a way about it, but like I haven't done any deep reading about the whole thing, seeing where exactly things went wrong or what the problem was. I mean, I know what the problem was, but just it's not a good look. That's my overall impression of this whole thing is it's just not a good look not for the restored church of Jesus mm-hmm, Christ mm-hmm. and coming on the hills, coming on the heels of uh, what's that dude's name? Hamilton, that elder that talked about uh, oh. people who rebel against the church are rebelling against Christ. Right. And I'm just yeah. like, Christ would not do this nonsense. Yeah. Like this is not something like this is a bad time to have said that or a bad time to have messed up in this way. So like, right. I don't know. I just don't have, I can recognize it as being a problem and being messed up, being a huge mistake, but I have not had the energy to be mad about it. Not not this week. Yeah, and I think apologists are going to come out, and and here's the other thing. Apologists are always going to come out and try to make everything, they're, they're going to come with some framework that will make it all fit nicely or at least attempt to and they'll say things like oh it was just a matter of like filing the wrong form and anyone could have done that or it's it's like a traffic ticket it's not actually really bad it's you know stuff that happened but here's my thing is it's not they didn't even do that this isn't tax fraud it's not like they did something to save tax money what they did was use shell companies uh to hide connections between these assets these investments and the church which is real you don't accidentally create a shell company that's not like filing the wrong form and they yeah. didn't do it to save money they did it to to hide things to they hide to hide to hide the investment portfolio from the people from the church like yeah. why would why would they want to do that why do they need to do that yeah, that's, you know, just... that's the concerning thing more so than mm-hmm. the than the how bad it was that what they what they did and and, and I mean, apparently we know why cre- they did it to like avoid paying more money and stuff just like a regular corporation but like the church isn't supposed to be like a regular corporation and that's the most jarring thing about this like and this is something that other people do this is something that big companies and whatnot do the church should not be doing this yeah we should we should be not of the world and I have to go back to the thirteenth article of faith we believe in being honest true like where's the honest where's the true like we need to be a witness of christ in the world um and we should stop talking about this because there's way too much other stuff we want to talk and sort of by way of introduction (laughs) to our texts from matthew mark and luke i want to say think in your head uh listeners think about all of these and what do these stories say about jesus's character because Mm. there's a lot that shines through and especially if you know these stories well You kind of like, oh, it just washes over you. But think about how Jesus's character is actually surprising the other characters in the narrative. Mm -hmm. And are we surprised by any of it? Because some of these things, if I had not grown up with them and then they were discovered later in a manuscript somewhere, I'm like, oh, this is like, I would like, wow, this is shocking. This is Mm -hmm. radical. Anyway, so I want to talk about... uh, Matthew 8 and there's uh, there's the parallel in Luke 7 and Mark uh, uh, Luke 7 and John 4 uh, okay. about the centurion's slave and uh, a number of queer uh, uh, there a number of queer folks have used this in a way of uh, 
saying, well, there's a possibility that Jesus was nice to a gay couple. And there's a whole bunch of problems that I find with this, in part because okay. gay couple is an anachronistic way of describing the centurion and his slave. Uh-huh. But this goes. This view goes back to Ted Jennings uh, back in the early 2000s. And his essential argument is that the word pice, which gets translated as boy or servant, uh, can be used of an individual uh, who is the beloved in a um, male-male pair. So in, in pederasty, you had a an older male and, a, and then a younger male, and the younger male was called the aromanos, the, the beloved. And his argument is, oh, look, this could have been the centurion's same-sex lover, and Jesus was nice to them and provided a favor for the centurion on behalf on behalf of his same-sex lover boy. And I'm like, there's a whole bunch of problems I have with this reading. Uh, and it's not, not that it's pro-gay. I like the pro-gay piece. It's just, uh-huh. does the evidence lead towards this, and does the application make sense? And I have, I think both of these are problematic. One of the frames that I want to ask is what frame are you putting on this? And what game are you playing? By you, I mean the queer interpreter. I mean, like, if we think that finding a gay couple in the Bible will magically fix things, we've already lost. Like, I don't think we need to scrape the Bible and find gay couples in order to find representation. Because my view is, as as soon as you find one straight couple in the Bible— that covers everything I need because there's no difference between mm-hmm. a gay couple and a straight couple in terms of um, there's no moral difference. Obviously, there's a difference in terms of the experience because of persecution and all this other stuff, but there's no moral difference. Any type of ethical discrimination or distinction is completely arbitrary and completely baseless. That's where I'm saying. So I don't need to find a gay couple. So people want to find uh, David and Jonathan to, to be same-sex uh, lovers, and and that's not really what I uh, see in the text. Um, now, they could have been, maybe, but I don't need to find gay folk in the text to find myself in the text, right? right. Because love is love. As, mm-hmm. as as long as I find love, then I'm, then I'm all, all okay. So as, my point is that We've already lost if we're going to go to the homophobes and say, ha ha, gotcha, I found a gay couple in the text. That's right. not going to convince them. Now, that's a different frame than, oh, this might help someone personally. If if someone's queer and this helps them get through the day, then that's different. But mm-hmm. I don't think the evidence is sufficient to convince the homophobes. And so we're already on a losing game if we let them draw the lines on the uh, field of play. So that's about the framing. But let's talk about the evidence. Now, Ted Jennings is correct on two points. Number one is that many Roman military officers did have enslaved folks that they had sex with. That is true. Okay, that's true. Um, and two, Ted Jennings is right that the word pice uh, can be used of the uh, uh like in Plutarch or in Thucydides, can be used of this same gender lover uh, 
in the in the relationship. Now, there's a there's a couple of problems though when we try to impose this or use this to help us understand what's going on in Matthew's text, and it's this distinction between what a word means and what it is used of, and those are different things because what a word means and what a word can be used of can be very different. Like take the word girl, right? The the word girl can be used of. Uh, for example, if I say my girl, it could mean my girlfriend. It could mean my daughter. Yeah. It could maybe mean my wife. If I say this is one of my girls, it could mean, oh, she's uh, she's a, a soccer player and I'm the coach. She's one of my girls, right? Or one of my students if I'm a teacher. Like, So the word girl can be used of a student. It can be used of a soccer player. It can be used of so many different things. Um, uh-huh. The word girl could could even be used of a servant or a or of an employee like here's one of my girls uh mm-hmm. um but it doesn't mean the word doesn't mean servant or uh, the word girl doesn't mean servant or soccer player or student or or uh, any of those things but it can be used of them and so what i'm trying to say is that the word pice doesn't mean gay lover it never means gay lover. It can be used of an individual who is otherwise known to be a male lover from the context, right? That, that's that's fine. But it's like the word boy. If I say, oh, here's my boy, well, maybe that's my boyfriend, right? But the word boy doesn't mean essentially at its core boyfriend, even though it can be used of boyfriend. Now, the word pice in Greek has a very wide semantic range. It can be... Um, it can refer to a uh, a boy in terms of age, boy in contrast to an adult. It can refer to boy or girl as a child, meaning descent, like this is my offspring, that, like this is my boy. It can also mean servant or enslaved person. And we see this uh, used in the rest of Matthew and in the Septuagint this way. Like the word is, and here's where I want to go, is like Matthew's audience, what what are they going to think? I don't think they're, they're going to go in here and think gay lover. They're going to read it in the context of the rest of Matthew and the Septuagint, which is the uh, Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, where it talks about uh, people being the Lord's servant, like Moses being the Lord's servant or Israel being the Lord's servant or Jesus being the Lord's servant, right, in, in Matthew. So this is the framework that Matthew's audience is going to be using. They're not going to be... I don't think there's any evidence in the text that they're going to, to look at this and say, oh, same-sex lover. In fact, the Luke's parallel uses the word doulos, which is a, a, a much more unambiguous word for, for slave. Uh, it, the John version in John 4 actually has huios, meaning son, uh, which may or may not be the same story as go- is going on right here. And I want to talk about... This thing about illegitimate totality transfer, which is a um, a very problematic way of of approaching the text, especially if you're approaching the text as an amateur, you're going to want to read into each usage of a word, every possible usage of that word. Like, oh, here in the text, I'm going to layer in all of the possible meanings of the word pice, meaning boy, meaning slave, meaning uh, offspring, meaning male lover, and it which never doesn't it doesn't mean male lover even though it can be used of a male lover. And let's talk about, this isn't ironic. It's going to sound kind of backwards when we first think about it, but it has to do with 
preachers are going to want to find golden nuggets and they're going to want to look up a single Greek word and make it blossom with a whole bunch of, of meaning and weight. And that's not how communication works. Um, communication doesn't bloom that way. We don't, we don't really do that in English. Uh, um, so much of it has to do with the interrelationships of the words and the context and, and, uh, well, here's a good way of putting it. Let's take the word cell in the word cell phone. If I'm writing an email and I say the word cell phone, or if I'm giving a talk and I say the word cell phone, if someone 400 years later comes back and tries to import through this illegitimate totality transfer every possible meaning of the word cell, like someone could say, oh, Derek is in the 21st century and he said the word cell. The word cell also means a, uh, a little room in a prison. It means a little cell in the body. It means um, a little rectangle in, uh, in your spreadsheet. Like, look at all these rich meanings that Derek is talking about when he talks about his cell phone because it, his cell phone is life-giving because a cell is the, the, is the basic unit of life. Or it's, it's entrapping him because it's, a cell is a house in a prison or a room in a prison. Or a, I'm like, no, I said cell phone because that's just what we could call it. I was not even thinking about all these other possible meanings of the word cell. And people do this with the biblical text all the time. They'll look up the Greek word and and come up with all these fanciful things. So how do we cut through all the mess? And here's the principle in, in communication and linguistics is that when we have a word that has a wide semantic range and we're trying to figure out which usage goes in this, uh, in this one spot, it's ironic, but it's the usage that adds the least meaning to the text is the is most likely the correct one. Preachers want to add meaning and add more and more meaning, but it's the usage that adds the least meaning is the one that best fits the context. It's the one that best that least interrupts the context and it fits the context the best. And to me, mm. to to take Pice and say it means gay lover and we're going to import this whole thing into this context, that adds a lot of meaning. Um, and the evidence is weak. Uh, Jennings' proposal has not really convinced the scholarly community. Um, it it uh, it doesn't quite succeed, and it's not going to convince the homophobes. It's it's a little bit of a stretch. It's a little bit of a weak argument. And there's a problem in okay, fine. What if they are gay lovers? There's there's a problem. There's a problem around consent. Like this isn't queer. This is totally not queer. It is the oldest trick in the book for men with power to exploit those they have power over. That's uh, normal. That's not queer. Right. Um, queer, the whole point of the queer movement is between consenting adults. That's what we've been saying for 60 years, right? This isn't really queer. It doesn't really help the queer community. Also, I have a problem that we've got, Jesus. someone could say, well, Jesus was nice to a slave owner, therefore slavery is okay. Well, that's not what I want to do. Or Jesus was nice to a military person, therefore military is okay. I'm like, that's not what I want to do. Or Jesus, I have a, and then also this was an occupier. This was a Roman centurion who was coming in and occupying. Uh, there's just so many ways that this doesn't succeed for me in in what what people want to make it to. I don't know if you had any reactions to any of this, but I'm kind of I should be done with this for now. No, I'm about to say, like, I didn't even occur to me to check the queer. Uh, this is, is this the queer, the queer Bible commentary that you have referenced on occasion, or is it, or is Todd Jennings working on something different? So Ted Jennings wrote Ted an Jennings. article in okay. the um, 
It was in the Journal of Biblical Literature. This may okay. have been picked up in the Queer Bible Commentary, but I'm not sure. I haven't, I, I haven't looked at that. It probably is there in some way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the only thing I can really add, I guess, is uh, I'm taking, I'm not taking the class, but I am reading books from the syllabus of Patrick Chang, who is a, a, an instructor here at Union Theological Seminary. And he talks about, you know, querying the Bible. And he, I don't remember which particular story he references. I mean, he does talk about, you know, uh, uh, David and uh, Jonathan from... Mm -hmm from the Old Testament as, you know, some potential spaces to queer the Bible. But he also makes a similar observation to you in that we don't really have to go after couples or these male-male pairings or these um, same-gender same pairings to necessarily queer the Bible. And I think he would agree with you mm -hmm. on, this particular, on this particular matter that this might not be an appropriate... Um, place to queer the Bible, especially where we have some rendering, some translations of the text, uh, rendering the servant as a, as a slave. Like I'm reading in the NRSV and it's reading, uh, the servant as a, and it translates the centurion servant as a slave, which makes me feel a way about trying to queer this text, particularly when there's not really consent involved. So, uh, right, right. Consent didn't exist for, for enslaved folks. Um, right. And, and that's problematic, you know, uh, we we don't want to try to do a kind of liberative queer reading of a text, I suppose, over something that is that. You know what I'm saying? Right. And people are people try to argue that well, if if the centurion wanted his slave healed, he must have really loved him and cared about him, and uh, maybe they were same gender lovers. And, and there's a problem in that. Um, well, Luke's version says that this, the slave was entimos, was dear or, or uh, precious to him. Uh -huh. And there can be, in the ancient world, you have different, um, many, many slaves. Uh, I almost want to call them servants. But, but many of these folks who were, for not, not free had valuable positions. They were household administrators. They were accountants. They were the executive assistants. They like helped, like you can have someone like really help your household or your business run. And that was their position. And you really need them and you really need them to survive. And you, they, right. There's, there's ways that, that folk can be, can be dear and precious without being, uh, without being same gender lovers because people say, well, why would, why would this person care about his slave's life? And there's, there's real complexities uh, involved here that don't, don't require them to be gay lovers. Um, and uh, anyway, so that, that's took up a lot of time. But what I want to do is go on and talk about, um, I just briefly wanted to say something about the cost of following Jesus in Matthew eight twenty. It's uh, Jesus says foxes have dens and the birds in the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And here we see some of the the economic positioning of Jesus. He didn't come as a rich person. He uh, was essentially dependent on other people for shelter and food. And that that should that should talk, talk to us about where our priorities are. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. We've got uh, Jesus healing uh, 
two men possessed by demons later in Matthew 8. I'm not going to talk about it this week because it's also in Mark chapter 5, and I'll get that next week. But I just don't want to name that here Matthew has two men possessed by demons where Mark has one. So this gives us some 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 examples of the human fingerprints in in the scriptures. I want to move on to talk about Mark chapter 2 and this healing of the paralytic. I could oh, I could talk about hours about all these things. But this is one of the stories that I grew up with. I'm like, oh, of course. They, they tear the roof open just like it's a Tuesday and that's what they did. Like that is radical. Like if that would shock us to our core if we read it now and never heard of it before about how disruptive it is because people just like today, people get in the way between me and Jesus, right? Um, people crowd around Jesus and prevent me from getting to him. I'm like, well, what do we do? And it is incredibly disruptive for this person with friends. I'm going to call them allies. These these four friends know how to ally. They realize this person cannot get to Jesus because all of the mess in the way, all of the structure in the way, both people and the building— so they, what they do is incredibly disruptive. They go and dig through the roof and are so desperate to get to Jesus that they're going to violate all sorts of, of, uh, of decorum and of etiquette. Is, is, now, I'm not saying that this is the worst thing in the world because many houses in the ancient Near East had sort of re-repairable roofs. They would maybe have to re-thatch the roof every year anyway. So it's not like this couldn't be fixed uh-huh. but this is quite disruptive think about how desperate it is and and think about their faith that goes outside the proper channels uh people in the church talk about the proper channels oh you got to go through the proper channels proper channels i'm tired of that phrase proper channels i think that phrase is one of the most manipulative and controlling phrases in the church hmm. and the reason is People, the reason people with power want us to go through the pop, proper channels is that they control the, they proper, control channels the proper channels yeah. and they know they won't work. No right. checks and balances, right? Jesus hardly ever goes through the proper channels. Sometimes he does, right. though. And so, yes, God is a God of order, but sometimes God's order looks like chaos from the perspective of those with unrighteous dominion. Mm. And we will see later in the parables how Jesus turns expectations upside down. And let's talk about self-reliance. This, this, this dude on the stretcher was not self-reliant. He depended on others to help him get to Jesus. And he depended on others to be transgressive. I, I don't think it was a, a crime or a sin exactly to dig through the roof. But uh, uh, especially if you're trying to get someone medical care, right? You got you to get to, gotta get to there. But another piece of this is look at, Look at the authority that Jesus has, because he now talks about the authority to forgive sins. And he, Jesus talks about authority sideways. He doesn't say, oh, well, I hold the proper priesthood. He never claimed to have any priesthood. And he didn't have any institutional priesthood at all. Uh, he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was not a priest. So he talks about authority based on the fruits. He says, look, I can... Heal this man and he can walk. That's how you know I have authority, not through some ordination, not through some other story, but actual real authority. Um, did you have any thoughts or reactions? Um, no, not really. Um, 
Like I, I do want to return to this theme of disruption, though, once we get to uh, the story of yeah. Jesus and Simon's house. That's a good uh, one. I want to talk yeah. about this question about fasting, because this new way of flowing through the world is breaking into the world through Jesus, right? There's something new. We've got this uh, messianic uh, newness here. Something, something's different here. And that is how Jesus justifies the lack of fasting when he's around. And it goes back to this new wineskins that you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. It will mess it all up. And I want to say that stuff in the church can change. We can't just paste on, um, right? We've got patriarchy. We've got uh, abuse. We've got problematic things in the church. We cannot just paste women's ordination on top of all that mess and think it will fix it. Um, And we can't just paste queer ceilings like if tomorrow they they uh, they uh, if tomorrow President Nelson says okay we're doing gay ceilings in the temple but nothing else has changed I'm like people are gonna say are you happy now I'm gonna say no <laughs> we didn't fix <laughs> just, uh, right. the underlying thing we just tried to put new wine skin into the old wine skins it's not gonna work and maybe I shouldn't talk about this uh, because I'm not black but in I am curious if in some ways in 1978 we put new wineskin into old wineskins and never fixed the old wineskins. Okay. And uh, are you saying – okay, tell me tell me why you would say that because when I hear about somebody using this particular analogy like the new wine into old wineskins, I mean what happens when you put the new wine in the old wineskins is that you know the wineskins break, the wine spills – and, you know, we haven't necessarily seen the church come apart at the roots because black people are now ordained. Like, right, we don't have right. a whole another sect of Mormonism, at least to my knowledge. Right. We don't have a whole other yeah, sect of Mormonism because of that. So, like, what, what, what would make you say new wine into old wineskins with regard to the priesthood and temple restriction being lifted? Well, it doesn't seem like we've really interrogated our racism. We just put the new thing on top of the old problems. Uh-huh. And didn't really say, well, how did we how do how do we make this mistake and how do we prevent it from happening again and how do we uh, provide reparations and how do we top to bottom really root out the racism that well, tell, has been Tell me here. about that then, Derek. What do you think would happen to the church if we actually did all that stuff? Well, we'd have to a lot of people would get get scared and uh there would be a lot of a lot of uh, white folks nervous and I don't know. Do you think, do you think we might risk a schism? It depends on how you do it, I guess. Uh, If you do it with moral leadership and patience and like, Hey, we're going to bring people along and we're going to explain things to them. And we're going to actually have, yeah, I don't know. But like I said, maybe this isn't my place to, to criticize the way that it was done. Um, but I wish we had uh Well allow me, Derek. I will definitely no. criticize that whole thing. I mean, I'm glad the priest and temple restriction was lifted, but you know, you've already alluded to it. There's still a lot of work to do to remedy and repair uh that whole thing before we like actually move forward. Like the fact that there's not a lot of people in this church that look like me, that's that's not an accident, and we do have to confront that at some point. Like we didn't end racism in the church by simply ending the priesthood and temple restriction. Right. So, I mean, that's got to be named. Right. Um, I want to talk about 
other things about new wineskins is that we should be prepared for change. Um, a lot of people in the church say, well, ordinances can't change. And I'm like, of course they can. Like if the Lord is doing something new, we might be we might have new wine in new wineskins, right? Uh, like look at circumcision or, uh, or animal sacrifices. Like a lot of stuff outwardly has changed. Like uh, what happens in the temple? changes uh, between dispensations and even in one dispensation we can have radical change so we need to have this uh, to so there's this principle in in Mormonism where there's a tension between two sort of paradoxical things kind of proven contraries again one is oh we're storing we're restoring the original condition but we're, we also have this principle of continuing revelation and how do you balance both of those in tension with one another? Versus, you know, getting back to this original pristine condition versus, okay, things can really change that are unprecedented. And part of the way I wrestle with this is you're not restoring the original form, the original outward form. What you're restoring is the original living relationship where God is on the move and we have a covenant relationship with God. That's been what's restored. And within that relationship, there's going to be growth and development. And part of growth and development, I've I've been wrestling with my place in the church for a while, and one of the paradoxes I've named is that so much of what I like about the church flows from what I don't like about the church. And I don't think I have time to go into all the examples of this, but there's there's things about the church that I like, and I'd love to just separate it from the stuff I don't like, but sometimes it flows from... Uh, stuff I don't like, and and I probably don't have time to talk about that, but we'll come back to that. All right. I want to talk about the the Sabbath again, and we've talked about it before, uh, but now we have this this text in Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath, and so the Sabbath is a blessing for us; it's a, a gift to us. But we do it backwards if we follow the Sabbath in a way that hurts us, right? And so when Jesus says. Yes. The Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. This is a general principle that applies to the Bible, applies to prophets and apostles, applies to um, checklists, applies to ordinances. Like ordinances were made for people, not people for the ordinances. Right? The institution was made for people, not people for the institution. So if we have to choose between which one do we prioritize, we prioritize the people. Like almost everything in Jesus is, Jesus is doing here is Jesus is prioritizing the people, like leaving the 99 to go to the one who has need. Um, the Bible was made for people. Like, we don't exist. It's not like the Bible was created first and then people are created in order to serve the Bible. It's the other way around. And here's the other thing. Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And his authority here didn't come from any lineage or ordination, but it comes from likening the scriptures unto himself because he says, look, we're violating Shabbat or we're appearing to violate Shabbat, but look at what David did. So Jesus appeals to the scriptures and likens the scriptures unto himself, and that's where his authority comes from, or that's where his ability to persuade comes from. And that's really what priesthood authority is. It's the, the capacity to persuade or the opportunity to persuade patiently rather than um, being coerced. I want to talk about the Mark 3 healing of a man with a withered hand because this, this now happens on Shabbat. Earlier we have the... the disciples plucking grain on Shabbat and then eating. Uh, here we have a healing of a man with a withered hand. Uh, 
And I just want to pause and talk about this isn't like, oh, Judaism is backwards and, uh, you know, didn't want to heal people on, on Shabbat and look at how backwards that is. So here's the thing about the position of the Pharisees, uh, as represented by Hillel and many others, uh, the normative position is that healing of a chronic illness can be delayed until the next day. Right, Because if it's a chronic illness, it doesn't have to be fixed today. Like if you've had this illness for 38 years, you can wait one more day. So you can – healing medical treatment ha- should be postponed until Sunday after Shabbat ends. For something – and this is, this is something that all normative Jews will hold by uh, in the ancient world and today is that if there's a, an actual medical emergency that someone's life is in danger – then not only may, but you must break Shabbat in order to save someone's life. This principle is called pikuach nefesh. Uh, so it's so so we shouldn't go back and look look at how bad these these Pharisees were. Like, yeah, and and so Jesus's point is a little different than what people might think it is. He's not saying, oh, well, we can. Um, He's not saying, oh, well, look at the Jewish position is bad and I'm doing something new. He's saying, yes, the Jewish position is fine. Totally, you can wait until the next day. But here I'm, I'm choosing not to wait. He's choosing not to wait because he says there's something in breaking into the world about my messianic thing that, that I'm not going to make people wait. So it's not just about saving lives. And it's to me, it's about living in the moment and why are p- oppressed people told to wait uh, here Jesus is saying like we don't even have to wait because of what's breaking into the world through me and I want to talk about sort of this it's hard to have a cultural analog to the Sabbath in, a, in our culture and the best thing I can think of is that observant Jews thought about and think about the concept of Sabbath the way that conservative people today think about gender, right? Gender is this clear category. You've got clear categories and clear dividing lines. And, and it's the same thing with, with Shabbat. In Shabbat, you have a clear division between one day of the week divided from the rest of the week. You have clear dividing lines between what is malacha, the, the prohibited work, from other actions which are prohibited. You have clear lines there. And you also have Shabbat as a clear dividing line between the people of Israel and other nations, that keeping Shabbat is one of the, the most important ways of showing the group identity. And also, Shabbat was very important. It was one of the ten, It's one of the Ten Commandments, and in the Torah, punishable by death. But this is kind of like, oh, here's gender. We've got gender has clear dividing lines and clear categories and clear organizations and everything is nice and neat and tidy. And what Jesus does to Shabbat is what queers do to gender, right? Jesus is blurring the lines. He's like breaking into like, well, what actually is um, good for the person? And it's even bigger than what's good for the person because he... He could have waited until the next day, but he decided not to. And that's the secret behind Shabbat was made for people and not people for Shabbat, right? Gender is performative. It's a way of moving. It's an optional way of moving through the world that we can take on for our benefit. And so we should not be restricted by rigid understandings of gender, just like um, rigid understandings 
of of Shabbat. Hmm. And he, I just want uh, to quote one text from the Mishnah. This is Mishnah Yoma eight six. V'chol safek nifshot doche et hashabbat, and uh, the Aramaic text says, "And a case of uncertainty concerning a life-threatening situation overrides Shabbat." So that's kind of where that is Sorry, going. Sorry, a, ca- a case of a case of uncertainty concerning a life-threatening situation overrides uh-huh. Shabbat. And this is even bigger. This is even more lenient. It's not like, oh, I know this person is going to die so I can break Shabbat. But even if you're uncertain, if there's a case of doubt, like I don't even know if this is life-threatening or not, in that case, you you err on the on the lenient side and and heal the person or give them medical care. So right. um, that's the, the sort of normative position in uh, in Judaism. Um, I want to talk again about Jesus's mother and brothers. His family is embarrassed of him, and this is in Mark chapter three, at the mm-hmm. end of Mark chapter three. Uh, Jesus's family is embarrassed about him, much like the family of queers can be embarrassed about us, and they want to protect him more than they want to understand him. And I think this plays out very interestingly. And he has to insist on his own truth. And what he right. ends up doing is decentering the biological family when he says, "Well, who's my my mother and my brothers? Let me get to it. Let me get to the text because I haven't actually been quoting many of these texts for the sake of time." We're in Mark three, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Mark three through thirty-five. Yes. So people say, "Look, your mother and brothers are calling to you, the biological family," and Jesus says, "Who are my mother?" And my brothers, and he looks around at those sitting at him and says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And I think that's uh, that's a really beautiful principle about Jesus decenters the biological family. He redefines family. Ooh, he's redefining family. Like, I'm, I'm definitely have the heart of Christ in me when I redefine family. And let's talk about sealing uh people we talked a little bit about woodruff and moving from a law of adoption to uh to biological sealings but we still do sealing of adopted children it has to be though your actual chosen family yes and we're not going to do this dynastic sealing of, of of adopting people away to people that they never really were a family with. But fa- chosen family is real family. And if you have adopted children, our church does recognize that. Chosen family is real family. Chosen family is sealed family or can be. And uh, it's really tough that, that I people name that I'm a child of God. Like people from the pulpit will name that I'm a child of God. But here we've got actions speaking louder than words, we, right? James says that faith without works is dead. Here we've got words because they say that I'm a child of God, but they don't treat me like a child of God. In this right. church, I'm not treated like a child of God. I'm treated like a child. Well. Yeah, I'm treated like a child, someone who's selfish, someone who's like disobedient, someone who's disruptive, someone who doesn't know best. Like all right. these straight leaders treat me like a child. They say, we know what's best for you. You have to trust us. You don't get the power to make decisions for yourself. 
that's really what what children are, right? You can't make you can't make these decisions. I know what's best for you. I have the power over you. I can punish you. I'm not treated like a child of God. I'm treated like a child, and that needs to end because there's more wisdom and knowledge on experience on my side of it, but there's more power and control on their side. We've got a problem when the when the people who know what's going on are not the same people as the people who have the power to change things. Uh let me see where we are on time. Ooh, wow. Oh. <laughs> I was about to say, Derek, don't. Don't do it. Oops. <laughs> well, um, we can talk about parables later because uh, that will come back. Uh, we'll, we'll have parables again. So we can we'll talk about that later. Again. So I want to hear what you have to say about Luke 7. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something about I – wa- I'm not going to say something about the Roman centurion – and uh, I don't think I need to say too much about John the Baptist in prison, but I did, Derek, just for the sake of, well, just for no particular reason, just highlight something about this exchange that I never really noticed. Um, so j- just so everybody's clear, John the Baptist had been locked up in prison by Herod and Tepus, uh, you know, for a minute. Prior to that, though, he prepared the way for... Um, you know, Jesus to begin his mission. He had urged his listeners to repent, warned of God's coming wrath, foretold the baptism of fire that Jesus would bring, uh, that the Messiah would bring. Uh, Receiving word about all that Jesus was doing, John was beginning, and you know, I'm wondering because of what John the Baptist ends up doing. Uh, He asked his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Uh, John was expecting, you know, the kingdom of God to go, to 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 come. Yet now he was in prison, and uh, he wasn't doing the work that he was doing before. No kingdom to his knowledge. So I have to wonder, and I'm wondering if you can shed any light on this, Derek. But why would John do this? Was he like beginning? Was he like wondering? Was he doubting? Like what was happening at this particular case? Because John, I I feel like John knew. So like, why is he? Is he wondering if he could have been wrong? Like, what's happening here, do you think? Well, I think I think this is a genuine question because part of the uncertainty is, well, what is the Messiah supposed to do? Right. Right? And uh, there were many different expectations of what the Messiah would, would be doing. And John the Baptist is trying to piece all these together. And obviously, John knew in some sense that that Jesus was called of God, but didn't yep. know exact. I, I honestly think that John didn't know exactly what's going on. Um, okay, that makes and, sense to me. And that was the vibe I was kind of getting, because like what Jesus did, uh, he, I mean, he told John's disciples to report back to John all the miracles that they had seen and heard, uh, the miraculous works that he was performing. They were fulfilling uh, the, the words mm-hmm. he had spoke in uh, his first sermon, the quoting of Isaiah 60, 61, verse 1, which foretold of the Messiah's deeds. Um, I think right. Jesus wanted John to be encouraged to continue to have faith in him despite his circumstances. And uh, mm-hmm. where I really wanted to bring that, Derek, or what I wanted to say, if this is in fact the case for John the Baptist, that he was still trying to piece things together and wasn't entirely sure of, you know, what was going on. I I think that it's worth highlighting that when experiencing suffering, that even the strongest of believers 
sometimes need reassurance and reaffirmation about Jesus and the gospel. And I just thought that was really powerful. Right. And I think another piece to this is so much of Jesus can only be understand understood in retrospect, like remembering it afterward, something yeah. like the resurrection, right? This was not something anyone was really anticipating, even though Jesus prophesied it. John yeah. the Baptist may not have known exactly what Jesus was doing. And there's a sense that even, even Jesus didn't know exactly what he was doing, Um up front, right? Yeah, uh, receive grace for grace or whatever the Doctrine and Covenant says. Knowledge right, for I think knowledge, there's, line upon line. There's, uh, there's ways that even Jesus grew in his self-understanding of his mission and what it would take and what the options were and, and if possible, take this cup from me. Things like yeah. that um, lead, me to th- lead me to think that, that this this messianic identity was was developing and exactly how it would unfold takes time. And John didn't necessarily know all this in advance, um, but but pointed towards Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I hope you caught that, by the way, Brother Derek. Even the strongest believers will sometimes need reassurance, will sometimes yeah. need, uh, what do you call it? will sometimes, when they're experiencing suffering, need reassurance and reaffirmation about Jesus, about the gospel, about their place in the plan. So, uh, yeah. I hope you heard that, Derek. Now, let me move on. Yeah, I heard that. Okay, very good. So, let me go ahead and move on to uh, this story that I really wanted to get to of um, the, the whole incident at Simon's house, at Simon's dinner party. And there's multiple things going on. Uh, in the story. Simon is a Pharisee who apparently had interest in, you know, the controversial teacher that is Jesus. And we don't really get an indication of Simon's motive for inviting Christ. But there is an uninvited guest that shows up at this dinner party, a woman that the text identifies as, at least in Luke, identifies as a sinner. And to call a woman a sinner in this context is to say something negative about her lifestyle, typically, like likely that she was either promiscuous or a sex worker. Um, But anyway, the uninvited sinful woman bathes the Savior's feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, and then anoints them with with ointment from an alabaster jar, which would have been expensive. She's breaking pretty much every norm of decency and polite society at this particular point. And Simon took notice of her. And Simon also took more notice and seemed more bothered by Jesus, who should have known who the woman was, uh, should have known that she was a sinner, uh, especially while she's like, while he is letting her touch him, like strict readings of Leviticus. And this is basically what Pharisees, religious leaders at this time do. They read the text very strictly, and strict readings of Leviticus would indicate that one is defiled by simply uh, touching or being being touched by a sinner. So Jesus, discerning Simon's thoughts, he replies to him um, in the form of a story. And the story Jesus tells is about a debt collector who forgives the debt of two people, one who owed about, or sorry, one who owed a little, about two months' wages, and one who owed a lot, uh, close to two years of wages. Now, neither of these debtors were able to repay their debt, but the debt collector forgave both debts. And then Jesus asked Simon an important question, which of them will love him more? Now, Simon seems to know that Jesus, the teacher, is trying to make a point with this story. And he answers cautiously, 
I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. That's what it says in uh, 743. Now, the point of the story, of course, is that those who are aware of their great need have a great appreciation for the greatness of the forgiveness and grace they have received. They have a humility that comes with an appropriate sense of their own dependence on God and their own sinfulness. But those who are blinded by their pride, or sorry, those who are, uh, those who don't know their own pride and privilege are unaware of how much they need forgiveness, so they don't have a proper appreciation for it. Then Jesus redirects attention to the uninvited woman and teaches Simon a lesson, beginning with the question, do you see this woman? Like Jesus knows, Simon can see, and that's not the real question. Jesus is actually questioning Simon's discernment here. He says, do you see her and not just her sins? Do you see a child of God and not just their reputation? Do you see this act of love and adoration and not just an embarrassing display at your dinner party? The question, do you see this woman, is an invitation to discern the image of God in all of God's children above all else. It's a question worth asking when we encounter sinners, uh, outcasts, and people who are otherwise dispossessed in our daily lives. Jesus then follows up with more details about the woman's presence and actions. In those days, it was common hospitality to provide uh, a guest with water to wash their feet and greeting with a kiss or, or oil for the head were signs of warmth and friendliness. As uh, Jesus would go on to state, Simon showed none of these courtesies, but the uninvited sinful woman bathed his feet with her tears, kissed him, and anointed his feet. It was she who was the first to show hospitality to Jesus in the Pharisee's own home. She was the one who showed hospitality, not Simon. And as an aside, Luke really likes exploring this theme of universalization of the gospel. He does this with the Roman centurion, and uh, we, see them, we see him do this in Luke 4 after his first sermon. He upsets the listeners by comparing them to Israel. Uh, that Elijah and Elisha pronounce God's judgment on, and in so doing, end up turning the Gentiles with whom they perform miracles. And now Jesus is once again using an outsider in the community to teach a lesson about faith, about how to be. One lesson is that the woman's adoration and respect toward Christ demonstrated that she realized she was a sinner who had committed and been forgiven of many sins. And by contrast, we have Simon, who was self-righteous. He judged the woman and perhaps saw little in his life that needed correction. He perhaps assumed that he was, uh, to use your phrase, Derek, all set, and that his life was in order the way it needed to be. And perhaps he felt no real need for what Jesus was actually offering. He was probably inviting Jesus over for no more than a real, you know, curiosity, which could explain his lack of hospitality. I feel we could fall into the same trap as Simon, as Christians, as members of the church, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We might suppose ourselves to be all set. We might suppose ourselves to be pious individuals because we check off boxes and strictly observe the letter of the law like Simon and the other religious leaders of that day did. But we miss Jesus in the midst of all that. I, I want to briefly read this uh, list of inventory questions that Pastor uh, Tony Evans asks in his own uh, in his own commentary on the text. Uh, what drives your time with, devotion to, and experience of Jesus? Do you go to church for uh, social connection? Do you read your Bible out of duty? Do you pray in boredom? Do you serve others for what it can get you in return? If so, you have forgotten your sin before God and the cross of Christ that cancels all debt. Close quote. 
I, I admit, I genuinely wonder why some folks go to church sometimes and how strong their relationship with Jesus can be or how strong their testimony can be if they feel good enough about themselves to judge sinners or those who associate with sinners. Is church mostly a social club to them? We have this conversation a bunch when it comes to right-wing Christian evangel- evangelism. Is church mostly a social club to them where they can propagate their ideas uh, using Christianity as a tool rather than the focus? Are the rules they follow so they can remain in good standing with the club rather than with Jesus? Uh, is it, to you know, to use your word, churchianity as opposed to Christianity? And some other things the story makes us consider is why Jesus associates with sinners in the first place and why Pharisees like Simon distance themselves from them. It makes us consider the fact that Jesus spoke far more highly of the hospitable, sinful, uninvited woman than his inhospitable uh, male religious leading host who was, again, a religious leader. He even used the woman to teach Simon. So like, what might this teach us in the church? What might it teach us about our priorities, about those who judge, about those of us sinners who are doing our best? And also consider the consequences of Simon, a member of the class of folks charged with teaching God's law to the people, withholding the experience of God's grace from his uninvited guest whom Jesus welcomed and withholding hospitality from Jesus himself. It feels like Simon rejected the Savior right in front of Christ himself. And we see, by the time we get to Matthew 25, the latter verses, we see that determining who gets into heaven is primarily about how we treat other people, especially the least of these in society. And I feel like if Jesus had to judge Simon right there, Simon wouldn't have made the cut. So it's just something that I feel like is uh, worth considering. I love how you brought out the transgressive nature of the woman's devotion, barging in, uh, washing his feet, right? There's just a lot of ways that she is sort of doing what the, um, what the men do in the Mark II healing of the paralytic where they dig through the roof. She's not going through the proper channels. She was, um, she was certainly not invited to this, right? Because Simon the Pharisee would not have invited her. She barged in and does all this stuff that um, really is is culturally transgressive. I'm like, wow, this is kind of interesting. And Jesus lets it happen, not only lets it happen, but praises it. And like you said, reverses, reverses and flips the table and said, she's the one who's been, who has shown hospitality. You have not shown hospitality. He flips it upside down, just like we see with many of the, the parables that we didn't talk about. But in almost all these parables, we can see how the parables redefine what a win looks like. And I think that's a, an important yeah. survival strategy of, of like, what does a win look like for a queer member of the church? We may have to redefine that from time to time and and be, be ready for these parables to surprise us, to subvert our expectations. And, and these parables are really queer. In many cases, they, they can be a survival strategy for the oppressed because we are speaking our truth in a way that doesn't get caught. We can smuggle in hope and resilience um, for those who are able to perceive the message, then it's there. Uh, people that don't aren't in on it don't get it. And I think that is something yeah. uh, really profound about how Jesus is able to smuggle in this truth through this parable uh, with with Simon 
with Simon the Pharisee. And so yeah. thank you so much for bringing out all of these things. Um, uh, yeah, and I think here the we and it's all about love, right? It ends up being like, Absolutely. oh, she loves me. Right. She loves right. me this much because her sins are greater. Therefore, the debt repay, the debt forgiven is greater. Therefore, she loves greater. Right. Um, and I think that's a that's a great way to to remind us of what the whole point is. It's not about checklist. It's yes. about love. Yes. And it's about trying. Like regardless, um, this woman, I again identified as a sinner, still carrying more favor in the sight of Christ than Simon did, a strict observer of you know the law or whatever. Like she actually was doing the work. She actually was hospitable. And, you know, we've talked about hospitality in the past, particularly when we were studying the Hebrew Bible, talking about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like it lets us know how big of a deal it is and how much more important it is to simply treat other people right, to treat other people's needs as holy, Mm -hmm. as opposed to merely filling out a checklist, you know, or checking things off a checklist. It is much more important, far more important to be a sinner who is trying to treat people right than a religious leader who shuns sinners and, you know, prioritizes a checklist over people's lives. And I want to tie this back to what happened, how it's framed right before uh, this the this story about uh, the Pharisee's house in Luke seven thirty four and thirty five, Jesus is explaining and defending against uh, people's accusations. People are saying he has a demon, and here's what Jesus says: He says, "The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by all her children." Close yeah. quote. I love this idea that wisdom is vindicated by her children. We have woman wisdom personified here, um, which sets us up for Jesus being the friend of sinners that we see with this anointing, and that woman wisdom ends up vindicated by her children. We can see in the in the fruits of what happens who loves the most, and we we flip the tables from Simon the Pharisee to this unnamed woman who right. now actually is the star. The star. And what is Simon? The stage or a footnote. Like, it, it, just, it really is food for thought and something we should consider as members of the church. We often relegate ourselves to these background roles where we watch history or the stories or the most important lessons pass us by or use us to teach future generations because Mm -hmm. we just were not paying attention. And uh, that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Hopefully with time, the spirit will, will move us all along and we will fix many, many things in the church. Um, Indeed, my friend. Anyway, we are at, 67 minutes shall we wrap up or is there anything else you want to nope that's all i mean there's always more it's like those infomercials but wait there's more (laughs) (laughs) i know that's a dangerous question i don't i know the risk of asking it but like yeah no i'm i'm done for now so yeah um any news to tell the folks i don't think so um i think you know most of what might be interesting out there something that i've already said or said at the beginning of this episode so uh but we'll keep you posted on you know whatever cool things derek and i are doing if anything else is coming up like i said um 
will likely be doing a follow-up interview with NPR. We shall see. Uh, if that does end up happening, um, you guys will be the first to know when it comes out. We'll post it somewhere. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, nothing else besides that. And uh, speaking of which, Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And if there's nothing else, thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Yeah, till we meet again next week. Bye-bye, everyone.